Let's cultivate our motivation. So as we go through every day, everything seems kind of normal. We know we have problems, but how our mind works seems fairly normal, fairly accurate. But when we look a little bit deeper and apply the Buddhist perspective, we'll see that our mind is very often out to lunch in the sense of not seeing things correctly. So psychology has a way to help us with many of our problems in this life. And it has its own way of attributing causes of these problems. But it functions within the context of this life. And so therefore, in explaining our problems, their origin, and as well as how to overcome them, it has a a comparatively limited perspective. It doesn't take into account previous lives, doesn't take into account future lives. It has no description of innate and acquired afflictions. And the whole way we perceive things is assumed to be correct. There's no investigation of grasping at inherent existence. So the Buddha presented a whole different way to look at our mind and also its potential. And as we learn it, the way we understand life, the way we understand ourselves, uh, changes quite a bit. We begin to see potential we didn't know we had, and we begin to see misconceptions that we didn't know we had either. And the Buddha always asked us, what is our intention? What is our motivation? Because that's the real thing that tells whether an action we do is constructive or destructive. So we're going to cultivate motivation now of compassion for all sentient beings wanting to contribute to their welfare. And in order to do this, to learn the Buddha's teachings, 
apply the Buddhist perspective for analyzing the mind and its perceptions and conceptions. And to learn what to practice and what to abandon on the path. So we can really develop our potential so we can be of the greatest benefit to all beings. And so the class this evening is one step in that direction. We've been, this class is in the middle of the book, um, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. And we're on, I believe, is it chapter five? Uh, that's about afflictions and karma and their seeds and their latencies. And so we've uh, been talking a lot about, in the last section, about manifest and uh, acquired, no, I'm sorry, about innate and acquired afflictions, and then also about manifest uh, and latent or seeds of afflictions. Okay, so innate afflictions are the ones that come with us from one life to the next. We've had them since beginningless time. Nobody put them in our minds, uh, and nobody else can take them out. They And they just uh, go right along as our mind goes along. And we uh, often don't even, some of them we don't even notice. Some of them we do notice, but we don't necessarily see as harmful. But they're called afflictions because they disturb the mental peace. Okay, acquired afflictions are um, misconceptions that we learn in this particular life. Yeah. So, based on the innate afflictions that see things in the wrong way, then we develop particular ways of those afflictions manifesting in this life. Okay? So, for example, if we take anger, yeah, innate anger is just, would just be the tendency, uh, you know, when we don't like What's happening? We aren't getting what we want. Things aren't happening the way we want them to happen. Then we get frustrated and fed up and angry. Okay, so it's the general thing of exaggerating the disadvantages of someone or something and then being angry, wanting to strike at it and destroy it that way, or completely get away from it and destroy any contact with it. Okay? So that's, you know, that comes with us. We all have anger, right? Yeah? Then, how does that anger manifest? So that might deter, uh, rely a lot on what we learned in this life. So, for example, if we grew up in a family where there was racial or ethnic or religious bias, 
we may have been taught to dislike a certain group of people, yeah, and to feel threatened by that group of people and therefore be angry at them, reject them, push them away, okay? Uh, We may have learned different views in this life about what to do if we're angry. We may have been taught that you just push it down and plaster a smile on your face. We may have been taught to strike back and destroy. We may have been taught that it's virtuous to destroy the infidels and the people who harm our own group. Uh, You know, who knows what we may have been taught, okay? But these are the uh, acquired afflictions, okay? So there's a whole, and that's just looking at anger, and there's a whole bunch of other afflictions to look at too. So there's a a lot of different aspects of ourself to look at and investigate and bring to the surface and uh, question. And, you know, are these mental states, first of all, are they accurate? Do they correspond with at least conventional reality? Uh, And are they beneficial? Do they really help me to uh, bring about the peace and happiness that I seek? Yeah, so in doing this, we find a lot of surprises. For example, that, uh, yeah, we have all sorts of uh, opinions that we don't, aren't really proud of having, okay, that we uh, justify, rationalize our bad behavior, that we are habituated to certain behaviors, and we're kind of uh, like push button, you know? Somebody says something in a certain way to us, a certain affliction arises, bang, we act it out, and we do this over and over and over again, and wind up actually shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, especially with anger, yeah? Because anger is pushing people away. And we think, you know, when we're angry, well, I want to push those people away. They're destroying my happiness and interfering with me. But when you really investigate, you know, are we happy when we push people away? Or would we be happier if we could find a way to relate to them? Okay, so we wind up questioning a whole lot of things that we may never have looked at or questioned before. And what we come up with may often surprise us. Yeah? Okay, so we've been talking uh, about the the, um, innate and afflictive. uh, I'm sorry, innate and acquired afflictions. Then we started talking about the manifest form of these afflictions and the seed form of them, or the, and also the latency form of them. Okay, so when a different mental states are manifest, that means that we're experiencing them 
right now, okay? But if we take something like anger, again, um, we don't always experience anger. We aren't always angry. Sometimes our mind's neutral. Sometimes it might be virtuous, yeah? So there's incidents of anger manifest, that manifest in our mind. Uh, But what connects one incident of anger with another one? We can't just say, oh, I was angry and then my anger disappeared because if my anger truly disappeared, there would be no cause for it to arise again. Yeah, because the anger would have been totally exhausted. But it comes up again in certain circumstances. So that's because there is a seed of anger. Okay? And so when the anger is manifest, it's there, we know it. Hopefully, sometimes people have manifest anger, they don't even know they're angry. Okay? And then... uh, And then they calm down, and so the anger goes back into a seed form. And then next time certain circumstances happen, they trigger that uh, seed form to come into a manifest form. So uh, we started talking about that last time, and there developed a big discussion about are there many seeds of anger And each time you get angry, do you have a seed? And, you know, uh, how big are the, you know, are the seeds different sizes? Uh, Okay, so it's very important here. When we use certain words, we are using words that represent physical things because we are beings that are very geared outward towards what our five uh, senses However, what we're talking about here are not things that you see with your eyes or hear or smell or taste or touch. We're using those words to actually represent things that have no physical form. Yeah. So in that way, whether when we're talking about afflictions, it doesn't really matter is there one seed of anger or many seeds of anger because the point is that between one incident of anger and another there's some kind of predisposition that's going along that hasn't been eliminated from our mind our mind stream okay and so we have to be quite careful and not concretize in a physical way these words that sound like we're talking about physical things, but they aren't. Okay? We had quite a big laugh about that during the week. Okay. So uh, I'll just start with the preceding uh, paragraph from where we stopped last time. So the seed of anger is not what psychologists call repressed anger. Having the seed of anger does not mean there is low-grade anger in our minds all the time. Rather, it simply means that the potential to become angry again exists in our mind streams, even though we are not angry now. So when we talk about seeds and latencies, we're talking about mostly about potentials. Yeah. Okay, so similarly, self-grasping 
the grasping at ourselves and all other phenomena as inherently existent, isn't always manifest in in our mind. It often is, but not always. But its continuity hasn't been eliminated. Okay, it is present in the form of a seed. So this whole topic of of the afflictions going into a seed form is quite important because as long as that seed is there, in the right conditions, that affliction is going to manifest. And if the conditions get really extreme, then how our the form our anger takes and how it's getting acted out becomes very extreme. Okay. So there's no reason for us to uh, uh, to be at all arrogant, like, oh, that person's really angry, but I don't get angry like they do. Okay. We may have worked on our anger. It may not manifest as, you know, in ordinary conditions as intensely as somebody else's, but... Because that seed is there, given the right conditions, our anger could manifest in a really explosive way. Yeah. So this is all to warn us not to be complacent and not to be arrogant at all. Okay. So uh, when we encounter certain conditions, For example, someone falsely accuses us of bad behavior. How do you usually react? Yeah, you're defensive. Yeah. Do you smile at the other person? What? How how do you act when you're defensive? Oh, you all look so terribly innocent now. Yeah. How have you seen other people act when they're defensive? I'm sure you can tell me that. (laughs) Yes? You are not defensive. Yeah, yeah, whatever they're throwing. I did not do that. I am not like that. I would never do that. Shocked and surprised that they even thought it. Yeah. Yeah. How could you even impute that on me? Ask for proof. Huh? Or you ask them to prove it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to open the the justice department here. Yeah. (laughs) Prove that I did that. I want to see the evidence. Huh? Oh, yeah, and then we lie. Yeah. Oh, I didn't do that. In fact, I did exactly the opposite, and we blame somebody else. So-and-so was the one who did that. Yeah. And it starts when we're young. You know, if you have brothers and sisters, who started the fights? Did you ever start the fights? No. No. It was always our brothers or sisters who started the fights. But we got blamed unfairly. Okay. (laughs) So, for example, someone falsely accuses us of bad behavior 
And this seed causes, this seed of self-grasping, causes self-grasping to arise as a manifest mental state. Okay, so we start grasping, I, I am being threatened. You know, this precious I that is the thing that my whole life revolves around, that the whole universe should revolve around, is being threatened. Yeah. So in and then then in the same way during the death absorptions, when the white appearance, red increase, black near attainment, and clear light of death of samsaric beings, self during that time, self grasping is not manifest, although it is present as a seed. So as we die, the body loses the power to have. Uh, very coarse afflictions, and in the subtlest state, the the afflictions cannot manifest, okay? But that doesn't mean that we are affliction-free. We have not counteracted the afflictions, so they can never arise. So the seed of the self-grasping goes into the next life, Okay? So because it has not yet been abandoned, self-grasping will re-emerge in manifest form in our future lives. Okay. There are also seeds for virtuous consciousnesses. Okay. These express us to, these enable us to experience manifest faith, wisdom, concentration, and compassion today and again tomorrow even though they were in seed form for a while when we were asleep. And also depending upon what we trained our mind in in previous lives, if we really put energy into training the mind in, let's say, love and compassion and fortitude to overcome anger, and we trained our mind well, we reinforced the seeds of those uh, virtuous mental states, then in the those seeds will also come with the consciousness and when we uh in our next life you know being com- kind and compassionate may, may uh come a lot easier okay so uh there are also seeds for virtuous consciousnesses these enable us to experience manifest faith, wisdom, concentration, and compassion today and again tomorrow, even though they were in seed form while we were asleep. Reflection on the existence of seeds of afflictions keeps us humble. After working hard to subdue a, a particular affliction, okay, so you may have one affliction that really is troublesome in your mind. Maybe it's greed or clinging attachment or resentment or belligerence or rebelliousness or laziness or, you know, there's a whole bunch you can choose from. Yeah. But you work hard to subdue a particular affliction. And, you know, when we apply the antidotes, they work. Yeah, and we see that the affliction goes down. So we may think, oh, that affliction is taken care of. I don't need to continue working on it. Yeah, like, oh, I used to be so angry. I've worked so hard on it. 
now I, I just I don't blow up the same way I used to. Uh, so I don't have to, you know, fuss about my uh, my anger so much now. It's you know, it's not so big. Okay, but my and here I'm talking about my experience. My experience is that when we think like that and become a little bit smug, the affliction will once again surge up strongly when we least expect it. Just when you thought you've overcome that one and that certain circumstances that used to trigger you badly won't trigger you, it comes out of left, left field when you don't expect it, and the whole thing comes right back again. Yeah, because the seed is still there. Okay, because the seeds of afflictions remain on our mind stream, complacency is ill advised, whereas humility brings the heedfulness necessary to stay on track in our practice. So we always need to be aware of what's going on in our mind, yeah, and not just say, "Oh, you know, I, you know that that affliction doesn't bother me anymore." Okay, then the Pali tradition. So this is uh, the one practiced mostly in Southeast Asia. Um, the Pali tradition speaks of underlying tendencies as connecting one instance of a root affliction with a later instance. So that's how they, instead of saying seed, they say underlying tendency. And it also explains that fetters and other defilements exist on three levels. Okay, first level, as underlying tendencies that are potent, uh, latent potencies in the mind. Okay, so you're not manifest in that mental state. It's latent. It's an underlying tendency. The second level is as manifest fetters, they actively enslave the mind. So that's what we were just talking about. It comes on, it manifests in your mind. As soon as an affliction is manifest in our mind, we become a slave of it. Okay? Anger tells us to go tell somebody off. Yep. Oh, sorry. I do it this way. Yep. I'll go tell somebody off. Greed tells me to go get something. I go do it. Okay. And and we just follow the afflictions. And we think the afflictions are making us happy. Yeah, they're taking care of us. Okay, so, and then the third level of afflictions is as motivating forces, they motivate non-virtuous actions of body and speech. Yeah, so the first one was the latent underlying tendency. The second one was manifest. And then the third one is it's even stronger because now it's causing our mouth to move and our body to move. Okay, and so we're really acting it out physically in some way, uh, usually against some other sentient being who is wondering what in the world is going on. Yeah, like, what happened to you? 
Okay. When we ordinary beings are not resentful, the underlying tendency of resentment still exists in our mind stream. Somebody criticize, someone criticizing us triggers this seed or the underlying tendency, and we become resentful. Okay, this is manifest resentment. Okay. Now, by this point, our physical appearance may begin to change. When you get really resentful, what happens in your physical appearance? Yeah, your your face gets dark or it gets quite red. You know? Hmm? Yeah, really brow. How about your muscles? Tense, yeah. Really tense. Okay. So to look and to see also physically what's going on when these are manifest. If we relieve, if we leave our resentment unchecked and neglect to apply an antidote, it will increase and motivate us to say cruel words or plot how to harm someone. This is the motivating level of resentment. Okay, so you sit there with your resentment. You go over and over in your mind the story of what that person did that was definitely unfair or how they have an advantage that you should have and you resent them for it. Okay, and you go over and over the story until a point where then you go act it out. So what do you do when you resent someone? Trash their reputation. You trash their reputation. Yep. You bottle it up and don't say anything because you're ashamed of them? Yeah, you could bottle it up. Don't say anything because you're ashamed. But do you act the same way towards the person? Mm -mm. What do you do? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. You slip in some marks when you can. Okay, there. You turn away from them. Yeah, they're walking down the corridor. You turn away. You scowl. Okay. So that's the motivating level. So a monk at the Buddhist time believed that fetters existed uh, in a person's continuum only when they were manifest and active. In other words, when they were latent, you know, they were completely uh, free of that affliction. If that were the case, the Buddha replied, then a newborn infant would not have the view of a personal identity because she doesn't even have the notion of a personal identity. So a baby would not have grasping at at an I, their own I. Okay. 
that grasping it was what sets off the whole self-protective mechanism and greedy mechanism and all of that. So do you think a, a baby is completely full, uh, free of self-grasping? Do you think they come in as blank slates? Why not? Yes. But how do they act that would show you that they would have self-grasping? No, how, how do they act in this life? Naja, when you're in the body and you crave in your body, how can you not have continuous craving for this body that you craved in the body? I mean, it can't just vanish because you take a new body. You, could you speak slower? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We have this thing going. And move your mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so when we are in the bardo and we are craving a body to be reborn, um, you know, so we um, have this strong attachment going on and then we are finding our way in a new body. So how that has to continue. So we are in this body and this, this craving is with us, this craving for that body. Um, it's just in the nature. It can't just disappear because we take a body. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I got it, but what you're saying is that there's craving, and the craving in the bardo makes us look for a body? Of course, we have attachment going on yeah. um, as a normal person, and um, that attachment drives us to be reborn. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. But what do babies, my question is, what do babies do now in this life? Right. Yeah. Cry. Okay. They cry. Why did they cry? I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm cold, I want some love. A, bit, a loud noise scared me. Yeah, do they have some grasping at the eye, at the person? You bet. Yeah, babies aren't sitting there thinking, for the welfare of all sentient beings, <laughs> I will shriek in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so what the Buddha is saying is, you know, if, uh, you know, because this, this monk said that uh, people only have fetters if they're manifest. So the Buddha says, oh, you mean babies, you know, when they're quiet and peaceful? don't have any fetters because they don't even have the idea of, you know, a self or anything like that. Okay. But the underlying tendency to the view of a personal identity uh, is present in that person's mind, uh, in mind stream. Similarly, a newborn does not have the notion of teachings the Buddha said, yet the underlying tendency to doubt the teachings is in him. Okay, So even as a baby, you have that underlying tendency to doubt. And then when you start learning different things, you know, uh, then you start doubting them. 
Infants and all other beings who have not attained stream entry, in other words, have not seen uh, the nature of reality directly, have the five lower fetters, okay? So a view of a personal identity, doubt, uh, the wrong view of the practices and uh, precepts, uh, sensual attachment and malice. Okay, so they, uh, infants, infants and all other beings who have not attained stream entry have the five lower fetters because they have the underlying tendencies for them. Okay, uh, but the commentary says that the underlying tendencies and fetters are not distinct. A defilement is called an underlying tendency in the sense that it has yet to be abandoned and still arises, resides in the mind stream. It's called a fetter in the sense that it binds us to cyclic existence. So what it's saying is we shouldn't think of manifest afflictions and the seeds of afflictions as like two totally cut off things. You know, they're talking about how an affliction exists in the mind stream. One is as a potency and the other is as a manifest mental state. Okay. So, uh, you know, whether babies come in as distinct, I mean, as um, clean slates, yeah, many people say that, and they think babies are so innocent, and toddlers are so innocent. Yeah. In one way they are, but... Were you ever bullied in grammar school? Did you ever bully other kids? Did other kids ever throw stones at you, or did you throw stones at other kids? Where did all of that come from? Yeah. Are kids really innocent? There's, uh, if you study child psychology, uh, there's a stage called the terrible twos. Okay, uh, anybody who's a parent? Yeah, are you, you, do you have kids? Okay, yeah, you have kids. Anybody else have kids? Yeah, terrible twos. What's the prominent word in the terrible twos? Hmm? No and mine. Okay? All of a sudden, this notion of mine becomes very strong. And also the ability to say no and assert oneself. Yeah? Now, if babies were clean slates, how did they learn all of that in two years? Yeah, it seems like just developmentally, some seed that was there gets triggered, and those thoughts come, and mine, that thought stays, you know, it is manifest so much in our life after that. Yeah, and no, oh my goodness, that's one of our primary vocabulary words, isn't it? 
hello, no, I won't do that. I just said hello. That doesn't matter. I know you want me to do something. Okay. The higher training in ethical conduct helps us to restrain defilements before they can motivate destructive physical and verbal actions. Okay, because uh, here it's talking specifically about our Pratimoksha precepts. So these are not only the monastic precepts, but the five lay precepts that lay people can take. Okay, and they uh, are specifically um, targeting physical and verbal actions. And so when we have reflected on those actions and we've come to the decision that we really don't want to do them, we really don't want to act that way, but that we do lose control of our mind and we have a strong tendency to do things, then we take precepts because the precepts will really protect us from acting out those habitual behaviors. Okay, so that's how the higher training in ethical conduct really helps us tame the the very uh, um, gross kinds of afflictions, or the very harshly manifest kind, I should say. So the higher training, that's the higher training in ethics. The higher training in concentration suppresses the manifest level of defilements, although it cannot, it alone cannot eradicate them because they still exist as underlying tendencies in the mind. So when, you, uh, when we can actualize the, jhana, the jhanic states of concentration, then the very, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, harmful, forms of these these manifest afflictions can't arise because the power of concentration is so long that they're suppressed. But the seeds have not been eradicated. So as soon as you are not in that concentrated state or, uh, or you know, don't keep your concentration up for a long period of time, then because the seeds are there, the afflictions again manifest. So only an Arya's higher training in wisdom can eradicate the underlying tendencies completely. That's why we need wisdom. Hmm? Okay, so now the latencies of afflictions. So remember, the seeds of afflictions and latencies of afflictions are different. The seeds of afflictions tie one moment of manifest uh, affliction to another moment of that same affliction. And those are called afflictive obscurations. So they need to be eliminated in order to attain the state of an arhat. There's another level of, of afflictions here. We, it's the latencies of afflictions. And uh, those need to be, those are still on the mind stream, even in arhats, and they need to be eradicated in order to attain Buddhahood. So those are the latencies of the afflictions. So latencies of afflictions are predispositions, imprints, or tendencies on the mind stream. Subtler than the seeds of afflictions, the latencies of afflictions do not give rise to manifest afflictions. Okay. 
So they're not, they don't give rise to manifest consciousnesses. They are cognitive obscurations that are possessed by all sentient beings, including arhats and the pure ground bodhisattvas. So pure ground bodhisattvas are seventh, eighth, and ninth uh, ground. They, eighth, yeah, sorry, eighth, ninth, and tenth. It's written here. Why did I say it differently? Um, Okay, eighth, ninth, and tenth grounds, uh, because at, at that level they have cut the afflictive obscurations, but they still have the cognitive obscurations. So the latencies, uh, the latencies of self-grasping ignorance give rise to the appearance and perception of inherent existence. Okay, so here's this word nangwa in Tibetan, and it can be translated as appearance, and it can also be translated as perception. So what it is here is it's an obscuration coming that's on the mind. It's not coming from the object. It's coming from the mind. Okay? So because it's coming from the mind... It's more like a perception of inherent existence because it's, it's something that obscures the mind from seeing things as they actually are. But because of that obscuration, when our senses contact things, all these things appear to us inherently existent. So it's sometimes translated as appearance Okay, the problem with translating it as appearance is that sounds like the, the problem is with the object. The object is appearing inherently existent. The problem isn't with the object, it's with this, the obscuration on the mind. So there's no good English word that has both of those connotations. So sometimes it's translated as appearance, sometimes as perception. It's, it's one of those words, okay? So latencies of ignorance and of afflictions also obscure the mind from directly seeing the two truths simultaneously. So they aren't these latencies are not manifest states of mind. Like I said, they aren't consciousnesses, but they obscure the mind. Yeah. It's, um, the example is often given of uh, you, you cook uh, onions in a pot. You the onions are like the afflictions and the seeds. You take the onions out, but the pot still smells. So that smell, the leftover, is the uh, obscurations, the the um, obscurations of, of omniscience, the uh, obscuration, sorry, cognitive obscurations uh, that impede us from having omniscient mind and from seeing the two truths simultaneously. Okay. The latencies, that's one effect of these latencies. There's some more coming. The latencies of attachment and other afflictions also cause arhats to behave in peculiar ways sometimes. Okay, so arhats have, are completely free of all the afflictions. Yeah, 
the manifest ones and their seeds. They're liberated from cyclic existence. They no longer take rebirth uh, in samsara. So it's a quite a high realization. Okay. But sometimes they behave in very peculiar ways. Okay. So sometimes they may spontaneously jump. Sometimes which is would be seen as unbecoming behavior for a monastic, especially, you know, an arhat monastic. Um, they sometimes they may speak harshly or they have unclear clairvoyance, or uh, even though they don't have any afflictive motivation. So they have no motivation to speak harshly, no motivation to harm anybody, but the latencies on the mind bring about these habitual behaviors that are like spontaneously, uncontrollably happen. Yeah. It's strange to think of. Mm-hmm. It seems like since those are actions, they would come from karmic seeds that are left on the mind, not from latencies. No, they're, they had said they're from the latencies of afflictions. Yeah. Okay. So this latency is more like a habit. At Buddhahood, all cognitive obscurations, as well as all latencies of afflictions, have been eliminated forever, so that a Buddha's body, speech, and mind are completely free from impediments and endowed with all excellent qualities. So the reason they they wouldn't be um, from seeds of karma is because the the actions done that would cause that would be they would not have a high intensity of motivation and the arhats anyway are free of clinging and craving and self-grasping that would trigger a karmic seed to ripen like that although it's coming that uh you know some strong karmas can ripen yeah, according to the Pali system, not according to the Sanskrit system. Okay, so that's latent afflictions. Now, karmic seeds and latencies. So, karmic seeds and latency, their seeds and latencies, uh, it has the same meaning. There's not a difference in them. And their purification. So although the seeds and latencies of afflictions are different things with different functions, the seeds and latencies of karma are the same. They are the legacies of non-virtuous actions and polluted virtuous actions that have the capacity to give rise to suffering and happiness in samsara. Okay, so this is talking about even the virtuous actions we do are polluted as samsaric beings because they uh, what lies behind them is often self-grasping. Okay, so self-grasping itself, we talked about this before, is not non-virtuous, it's neutral, but, and so under its, its influence, we can create either virtuous karma or non-virtuous karma. 
Okay. So we have these uh, seeds or latencies of, of actions that we've done. So their fruits are ripening results, uh, causally concordant behavioral and experiential results, and environmental results. Okay, what are the ripening results of karma, of karmic seeds, or of karma? The rebirth that we take. Yeah. What is the causally concordant behavioral result? Tendency to do the action again. What's the causally concordant experiential result? You experience somebody will act similar in how you acted towards somebody else. Somebody else will act similar to you, and you will experience what you cause somebody else to experience. And the environmental result? Yeah. So where we happen to be born. Huh? Or where we live, even, you're, you know. You don't always live where you're born. So karmic seeds that cause rebirth in samsara are true origins, but they are not afflictive obscurations. Okay. So while they are not eliminated at our hardship, these seeds can no longer ripen because craving and clinging, the factors that stimulate their ripening, have been eradicated. Yeah. So because there's no craving and clinging, the uh, karmic seeds that cause the ripening result of another rebirth cannot ripen because the 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 uh, cooperative conditions for them, craving and clinging, aren't present. In the context of the pa ten paths of non-virtue, the three that are done by mind, covetousness, malice, and wrong views, are afflictions. Okay? So you may remember this from volume two. Yeah. So when they cease they leave the seeds of afflictions on the mind stream. Yeah. So those are the, the ten pathways of action that are done by the mind. The mental factor of intention that shares the same primary consciousness with those afflictions is karma. So the afflictions, you know, covetousness, Malice and wrong views are afflictions. In that mental state that, that manifests, that primary consciousness, also has the mental factor of intention. That mental factor of intention is karma. Okay? And so the mental factor of intention that shares the same primary consciousness with those afflictions is karma. And that intention leaves seeds of destructive karma on the mind stream. Okay? So the question had come up before. If those last three of the ten non-virtues, coveting, malice, and, uh, and wrong views, if they're afflictions, how do they leave karmic seeds? They don't leave the karmic seeds, but the mental factor of intention that shares the same primary consciousness or that is in the same mental state as them. That's what is the karma that leaves the seed, the karmic seed.
Okay. So the mental paths uh, of virtue, non-covetousness, non-malice, and correct views, which are not just the absence of covetousness and so forth, but mental factors that are the opposite of them. Okay. So instead of non-covetousness, there would be an, uh, an attitude of giving, of sharing. Instead of non-malice, there would... Uh, an, Instead of malice, there would be benevolence. Instead of wrong views, there would be correct views. Okay? So uh, those leave the seeds of those virtuous mental factors when they cease. And the intentions that accompanied them leave the seeds of uh, constructive karma. In the chapter on fortitude... In Chandakirti's supplement to Nagarjuna's treatise on wisdom, uh, Chandakirti speaks of the great adverse results that arise from one bodhisattva becoming angry at another. These reigns from the destruction of virtue created over thousands of eons to suffering experiences to obstructions preventing advancement to higher paths. So this is explained also in, in Chapter 6 of Shanti Deva, which we're currently studying on Thursday mornings. So you'll hear more about it, and you will uh, get the math uh, of, uh, yeah, the math of merit and the math of the destruction of merit. <laughs> Okay, how many eons get destroyed with one moment of anger and so on? Even when neither the person nor the person he is, even when the angry person and the person he's angry at um, are bodhisattva, no, even when neither the angry person nor the person he is angry with are bodhisattvas, Anger can destroy the root of virtues. Uh, the questions of Upali Sutra speaks of three levels of the destruction of the root of virtues. Okay? So the root of virtues being diminished, thoroughly reduced, and completely consumed. So you've worked really hard to create those virtues, you know, every morning. You got up, even though you were half asleep, and you made offerings on your altar, barely keeping your eyes open, okay? But you created virtue, or you did some specially, some special virtuous action that you really thought about a long time and planned for and executed really perfectly, okay? So these roots of virtue... There's three ways that can be obstructed. Diminished, thoroughly reduced, and completely consumed. So diminish means the increase of roots of virtue dwindles, but the pleasant results are not destroyed. Okay? So, you know, very often if you have the roots of virtue in your mind and you continue to do virtuous actions, those roots can increase. But here the increase dwindles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because 
you got angry or generated wrong views that interfered with them. Okay, but the pleasant results are not destroyed. Reduced means that the pleasant results are minimal. Okay, so you work for three, you know, three eons, and that much merit, the results are minimal. Okay, and completely consumed indicates that the virtuous karma cannot ripen. We don't want that to happen, do we? With the last one, where the karma is blocked from ripening, the potency of the seed to bring pleasant results is destroyed, but not the seed itself. So it's the seed's potency to bring good results is destroyed. It cannot ripen in that way. But the seed is still on the mind stream and acts as some kind of obscuring force on the mind stream. These seeds of virtue are those from the collection of merit um, created by generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, and other compassionate actions. Actually, I don't know if the uh, seed of virtue... Yeah, if it, if it was polluted virtue, yes, it, the seed will probably still be some kind of obscuration on the mind stream. Um, say they are not seeds of virtue from the collection of wisdom, which are created from meditating on selflessness and emptiness and by arranging for texts on those topics to be taught. Okay, so diminished, reduced, and completely consumed. Hmm? The Akashagarbha Sutra says that transgressing the root bodhisattva precepts destroys previously created roots of virtue. And Shantideva's compendium of instructions, or Shiksha Samuchaya, warns that spending time with benefactors with the, when you have the motivation to receive gifts from them, bragging that we possess spiritual attainments that we lack, and abandoning the Dharma by giving incorrect teachings, but saying they are the Buddha Dharma, that these three things also destroy our reeds of virtue and impede our progress on the path. So these are, are big warnings from us, things that are very important not to do because they're especially powerful non-virtue. Okay? So you can see spending time with benefactors and the whole reason you're doing it is, you know, you kind of butter them up and you hope that they'll give you some kind of gift or some new clothes or some money or take you out to your favorite restaurant. In other words, there's polluted motivation to get something out of someone. Um, another one is bragging that we possess spiritual attainments that we don't have. Yeah, oh, I've realized this, I've realized that. Or I had this far-out meditative experience. I think I must have been close to realizing emptiness. Or Kuan Yin appeared to me, you know, and talked to me. These kinds of things, okay? So you, you brag about them. 
Yeah, I mean, you got to talk about with your something with your Dharma friends, and you can't talk about how much dope you have anymore. So, you know, this is the, the, the good currency that you can use to impress somebody now. Okay, you brag about your spiritual attainments. Yeah. Or abandoning the Dharma by giving incorrect teachings, but saying they are the Buddha Dharma. And th- so this one is really bad, because here you haven't learned the Dharma well, or even if you have, you don't agree with certain things, So you make up something that sounds good, sounds spiritual, yeah, and you teach that. And that's very harmful for other people's minds because I've really noticed that sometimes the things that people learn first in their first Dharma courses are the things that they really hang on to. And if they... If that person who taught that was teaching the wrong thing, then afterwards, you know, they may come across a really qualified teacher who says something different, but the person doesn't believe them because they're hanging on to what that initial teacher said. So, you know, like pretending we know things that we don't know, teaching things we don't know, making up phony baloney answers because we don't want to say, I don't know then all of this can be really, really dangerous, you know? And uh, um, people going around saying, oh, you know, the Buddha didn't teach rebirth, and this kind of stuff, you know, is very, um, not karmically, not good. Okay. So then the question arises, the teachings of Akashamati Sutra, says that just as a drop of water that falls in the huge ocean is not consumed until the ocean dries up, so too merit derived from actions motivated by bodhicitta and dedicated for awakening are not exhausted until awakening. We've heard that many times in teachings, haven't we? If you dedicate your merit, it prevents it from... It usually, they usually say it prevents it from getting destroyed. That's not true. It de- prevents it from getting exhausted. Okay. So the e- analogy of the drop in, in, of water in the ocean indicates that the merit of those actions is not exhausted when the effects arise. The merit will continue to bear fruit until awakening. Okay, so usually karmic uh, results, yeah, as soon as they bring the result in samsara, their potency is exhausted and they can no longer bring results, okay, when that potency is exhausted. But here, actions created, uh, motivated by bodhicitta, dedicated for full awakening, even those Actions result in some good benefit, like you get another precious human rebirth or something, or you meet fantastic teachers. That that merit doesn't get exhausted until you attain awakening. Nevertheless, these roots of virtue may still be harmed by anger. Okay, so exhausted and destroyed are very different, and sometimes 
people translate it as the merit is not destroyed, but that's not correct. Okay? So in the case of purifying non-virtue, when we ordinary beings apply the four opponent powers, which are regretting the non-virtuous action we did, the power of reliance, which means uh, in your mind restoring the relationship with whoever you acted negatively with. So taking refuge, if we did something negative in relationship to the three jewels or or our teachers, or uh, generating bodhicitta, if we acted negatively in relationship to sentient beings. Third opponent power? Okay. Well, the power of the remedial reaction. Remedial reaction. So you do something, some virtuous action. You know, and then the fourth one, the the power of resolve or determination not to do the action again, or at least not to do it for a certain period of time. Okay. So when we ordinary beings apply the four opponent powers, we impede the ripening of the seeds of destructive karma by diminishing, reducing, or completely consuming their potency, as described above. So either diminishing uh, the result and keeping the the potency from uh, multiplying, uh, reducing the, the amount of suffering you experience, or completely consuming it so that uh, no detrimental result or painful result is experienced. So depending on the strength of the four opponent powers, the potency of the seed may decrease, or the coming together of the cooperative conditions for the seed's ripening may be delayed, which gives you more time to do more purification. If purification is strong, the potencies of the seeds, their negativity is disabled, although these deactivated seeds remain on the mind stream, like burnt rice rice seeds that remain in the ground, okay, or knapweed seeds that have been sprayed, okay? The seeds are there, but they can't grow any knapweed, although they seem to anyway, don't they? Yeah. The seed is there, but it cannot bear a result, even if suitable conditions occur. Purification by means of the wisdom directly realizing emptiness, which begins with the path of seeing, is the most powerful purification. It thoroughly destroys those seeds of non-virtue. Okay. And it's the thing that starts eradicating them, even the burnt seeds from the mind. Vibhasakas and Satantrakas say that it is not possible to purify seeds of destructive karma completely. Some result must be experienced. Okay, thank goodness the Prasangikas don't think like that. Okay, well, it doesn't matter what people think, it matters what, how things really are, doesn't it? 
okay? As proof, the Vaibhasakas and Satantrikas recount a sutra passage attesting that the Buddha experienced pain after stepping on a thorn due to a subtle remaining karmic seed. Okay? So they say the Buddha actually experienced pain when stepping on the th- that thorn. The, the um, upper schools say that the Buddha um, appeared to uh, experience pain, but he didn't really. Okay. Similarly, the Vaivasakas and Sartantrikas say that Moglianna's tragic death, in which he was beaten by robbers, was due to previous destructive karma, the seeds of which remained on his mind stream even after he attained arhatship. So even arhats experience results of, suffer- of negative karma. Chitamatrans and Madhyamakas, however, assert that all seeds of destructive karma can be completely purified so that no suffering results, uh, no suffering ever results from them. Okay. And then the seeds and latencies are abstract composites. They are neither form nor consciousness. Of the five aggregates that are the basis of designation of a person, the seeds and latencies are included in the fourth aggregate, the aggregate of miscellaneous factors. While the actions and afflictions that create seeds and latencies may be virtuous or non-virtuous, the seeds and latencies themselves are neutral. Okay, so we shouldn't say this, the, uh, the, uh, this, you know, the non-virtuous seed of killing. It should be the seed, uh, the seed of killing or the seed of the non-virtuous action of killing. So that the non-virtuous always modifies the action, not the seed. Okay. So questions, comments. So the stories about the arhats who have these weird quirks, does that come from the Pali Sutra? Uh, I think it must, as well as the Mahayana Sutras, yeah. They say that sometimes they act like monkeys, they'll swing on a tree. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had a question about um, the results of karma. And how does committing an action lead you to have it done to you or to have the experience that another person had? Like, how does the mind know that? What do you mean? It, it, the, you know, if I insult you, you feel hurt. Your feeling of hurt mm-hmm. is, yeah, the karmic result of you saying painful things to somebody else. But how does the seed know what the other person felt when the action was committed? It, it, it isn't, you insult me, so I insult you back. No, I know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But what do you mean? How does the seed... It, it's just the circumstances are there, so the seed ripens. Mm-hmm. It's like but, a mind-to-mind transmission of some kind. No, it's just... Um, I don't think I really understand your question. It's like, if you insult me and I feel hurt, 
and then later on the same thing happens to you, why? How does my hurt cause you to later feel oh, hurt? Oh, because I said the harsh words to you with the intention to hurt you. Okay. If I don't have the intention to hurt, but you're super sensitive and feel hurt, I don't accumulate that negative karma. But in this situation, I had the negative intent. I really want to give it to her. Yeah. So there's the appearance or the perception of inherent existence. Yeah. Right. That we have. What about the other three distortions, like of permanence oh, right. or satisfactoriness yeah. or beauty? Yeah. I've asked about them. And uh, they seem, uh, they're innate, okay. Um, but what, what's your question about them? We have the appearance of them. Are they um, oh, n- n- like our sense perception of permanence oh. or of beauty? Oh, you mean? Like similar to like the latency the appearance of existence. Of that. Oh, let's see, that's usually, I think by the time you're an arhat, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, foul things still appear to you as foul. You don't have pure perception. Yeah. So maybe something like that. Uh, Whether impermanent things appear as permanent to an arhat, that, uh, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, and and that uh, things that are dukkha in nature appearing as pleasurable, I don't, not to an arhat, no. Yeah, and the appearance of things being foul, that one they've called, to, uh, oh, the appearance of things that are foul by nature appearing as, as pleasant, I don't think they'd have that one either. Yeah. Conceits and latencies manifest in lucid dreams. What manifests? Latencies. Latencies. Manifest in in dreams? Lucid Lucid dreams? Well, usually you start out dreaming, and then in the middle of the dream you become lucid. So uh, if if you become lucid at all. The dreams... It's explained somewhere in this chapter, like you see something during the day and then you dream about it at night. So that's another kind of seed. That's not a seed of of afflictions or a seed of karma. It's just the seed of, you know, having contacted with a contact with an object and then you dream about it. Yeah, I don't think it matters much whether you're lucid or not in the dream in terms of what appears. Hmm? Yeah. So that that would be the uh the seed of affliction manifesting as afflictions in your dreams. Yeah. Do pure ground bodhisattvas also act in peculiar ways like the arhats? It seems not. Yeah. It seems not. I've never heard that said about them. And, you know, what's the difference, you may ask? Uh, Their incredible accumulation of merit, you know, because by the time 
they're, if they're following the sutra path, by the time they become an eighth ground bodhisattva, they've spent two countless great eons creating uh, merit. So with that, they probably wouldn't have those kinds of actions. So the text mentions, depending on the strength of the four opponent powers, so what can we do to strengthen this? I mean, regret is key, right? Yeah, that's the key one. And if that is really clear in our mind and yeah. heart, will yeah. that enhance the others? Uh, of course. The, more, the stronger you regret something, the f- stronger you know, okay. you're going to make all the other amends. Okay. Yeah. And especially if you really regret something, then you can really say, that, I'm done with that. Yeah. And may have a very strong determination not to do it again. So back in the the beginning of of what we talked about, um, there was the discussion of self-grasping being manifest or not being manifest in the mind. Mm -hmm. The two examples seem fairly extreme of, you know, manifest when you really have that self-grasping of I've been criticized or it's latent at the time of death. Mm -hmm. So if I'm asleep, if I'm kind of just in a neutral state, you know, staring at some clouds or something. That the self-grasping may not be manifest okay. at that time. Okay. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you're seeing things exactly as they are. There's still the appearance of inherent existence. Okay. Um, so seeds and latencies, obviously, this, these don't refer to physical things. They're propensities. Um, but being that these are what travel in our mind streams from life to life, like what is what is the stuff of the seed if it's immaterial? Where is it stored within the mind stream? How is it stored? Well, um, it's like the mind stream. Where is the mind stream? The mind stream is totally immaterial too. So we use the word mind stream and we have the image of, you know, something like, you know, or or we hear, oh, the mere self, and you know, it's just like in the movies. There's some ambiguous kind of cloudy thing that's really me. That's my mind stream. That when I die, it comes out up here, and then it goes over somewhere else and drops down. It's not like that. There's nothing made of form. So, but, but look, if I say to you, okay, trust. Trust is an emotion. Does trust have color? Does it have shape? Can you hear it? Can you smell it? Can you see it? Right. It's, so that much I, I understand to speak of it as a propensity within this life. Like that seems yeah. graspable enough con- conventionally. Um, but I guess I'm a little stuck on understanding in like a authentic way beyond like language and labels and sort of we call this thing a seed it's not literally a yeah. seed and understanding the the storage system within the mind stream yeah so, to say. so again we're still looking yeah what's the storage system how do you file it yeah and there is no storage system like that you know there there's no uh, kind of department in your mind where, okay, here are all the non-virtues categorized according to their heaviness, but you can also switch it where they're categorized by 
the lifetime they were created in, or you can get, or you can shift it, you know, like some kind of really nifty database where you could see the things in different formats. It's not like that. And so we know that they must exist because of cause and effect? Yeah, and because we experience the results. And because otherwise, how else are you going to explain that, you know, you were angry one day and angry the next? Mm. Yeah, because if there were no seed of anger, if after you got angry, okay, then there were no seed of anger, then as soon as you calm down, yeah, you are done with anger forever and ever. You never have to apply an antidote. You don't have to realize emptiness. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is calm down, and then there's no more anger forever and ever and ever and ever. Huh? Mm -hmm. That's not mm -hmm. what happens, is it? Right. So there's something that carries it, but it's, and we want to see, because we think in, in symbols, you know, mind streams, something's going along here, and the seed, there's a little seed that you put there, it's on a little thing that floats, it doesn't sink to the bottom of the stream, it's on this thing that floats, and then it floats along with the mind stream, okay? And the mind stream leaves one body and goes into a next. So it's kind of like, you know, the mind stream comes to this place where it's, it's kind of like a waterfall. So it, it falls down and then it winds up going up again into another body. And, and, and it keeps going. Yeah. And we have this perfect visualization of something made of atoms and molecules of something that that's, that's is not. not made of atoms and molecules. So then is it correct for, just as, as a way into understanding this and um, having faith in it, it's, it's observing cause and effect and having faith in karma, basically. Mm -hmm. the, ask the question again? Like, the, like the, the way into understanding it with conviction is through the observation of cause and effect. Yeah. Yeah, Done because deal. yeah, that I mean, that's why that's in the con that's the context in which the seeds and latencies and so on are are described is cause and effect. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. When we die, um, then there's a description of something um, that the consciousness leaves to the head, or there's certain you know you do certain. This is also it seems like it's something. There's something there. Yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. like it is, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, ask somebody else. <laughs> if things are truly innate, uh, can we ever possibly imagine breaking free of, or innate... Uh, can we ever possibly... Imagine breaking free of those innate things or values that we have? Break free. Break free. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, this is why we practice the Buddhist teachings. Because what he taught is the antidotes to these things. So, you know, things are innate, but they are all, the afflictions are all, all innate, but not all of them are innate. They are all rooted in self-grasping ignorance. 
Okay? So this ignorance grasps the I, the person, as well as all other phenomena, to exist in the opposite way from how those things really exist. When we develop wisdom that can see how things really exist, that ignorance, you know, when, as the more we meditate on the wisdom and uh, it seeps into our mind how things are really, how things really exist, then the ignorance gradually goes down and down and down until it's completely eliminated. When the ignorance is overcome, then the things that depend on it can't arise. It's like when you uproot a tree, you don't have to, uh, oh, napweed, you stay here long enough, we'll show you some napweed, okay? Um, and when you pull the napweed up, yeah, by the roots, then you don't need to pick the flowers and buds off of it because it's it's uprooted. It's not going to grow again. So I guess a follow-up question to that would be, doesn't that in a sense contradict the fact that things are innate? Because if you can learn certain behaviors just by observing them, uh, you talked about kids. Isn't that that they observe other people doing that? I know for you know two-year-olds, it's kind of hard for them. But unless they get that, you know, they can't survive. It's like a nature-nurture sort of thing. Oh, you uh, mean some, some things that happen to us in the nurture actually increase the mm -hmm. afflictions. Mm -hmm. um, that has to do with us taking this kind of body and mind under the, under the influence of afflictions and under the influence of ignorance. When you gain those high realizations... Yeah, then you don't have this same kind of body. And you don't have that, those same kind of innate motion, emotional needs. We're a kid that is, you know, observing other people, you know, acting in a certain way, and you pick up on it. Uh, and then you observe them, you can sort of unlearn the behaviors that you thought were important to you. Yeah. Okay. You can unlearn them. Yeah. If As ordinary beings, I mean, we may have... Uh, all of us had innate anger. But if you grow up in a family that uh, didn't yell and scream at each other, but actually talked to each other when conflicts arose, uh, then you would learn, oh, okay, I may feel irritated, but I do not need to act that way, and there's a way to resolve conflicts. So your anger level may go down. But it's not going to be completely eradicated until you realize the nature of reality that will cut the root of the ignorance altogether. Okay, so I guess, like, how did you get to that point where you can understand? You practice a lot. Okay. And you, it's a thing of studying or learning, hearing mm -hmm. teachings, okay, reflecting, thinking about them, discussing them with people, and then meditating on them and integrating them in your life. So it's that, that three-step process that you do with the teachings. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. This will be the last question. If someone intends to hurt by saying harsh words, how does that cause them to be hurt in the future by someone's harsh words to them? Uh, in the same way that I just described to her, you are intending to speak with somebody to somebody w with harsh words 
that plants the seed of that destructive action on your mind. And then when causes and conditions come together in another life, that seed will, will ripen as a painful situation. Yeah, it may not ripen exactly as somebody saying the same words to you that you said to somebody else, but it'll ripen in some kind of painful situation with another person. Okay. Uh, here I refer you to the chapters. There are a few chapters on karma uh, in the foundation of Buddhist practice. Okay. To be continued next week. But hopefully gives you something to think about.